0: This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's. Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory in Ruskin, Florida. Thanks for joining us. Florida has been the center of aquarium fish and plant production in the United States since the 1930s. The state's fish farmers currently raise hundreds of species of ornamental fish. But how do they breed all these different species? Most people know guppies give birth to fairly developed young fish, but do they know how guppies actually breed? And what about all the other species? My guest today is a good friend and colleague, Craig Watson director of the university of florida's tropical aquaculture laboratory although craig has worked in many different areas of aquaculture he has always had an obsession for aquarium fish sex figuring out what it is that makes fish want to breed and it's not just all about soft lights and music he's helped many farmers crack the secrets of the intimate world of fish and will share some fascinating stories with us today join us we'll be right back right after these messages stay tuned Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is a good friend and colleague, Craig Watson, Director and Research Coordinator at the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory, and one of the biggest fish heads I know. Hey, Craig, thanks for being with us today. Hey, no problem. Enjoyed it. So you are into sex, and we're going to talk more about that in in a second. But I I wanted I wanted to talk a little bit about your background because it's actually pretty interesting. So. If you can think back eons, I guess, hundreds, maybe hundreds of years ago to your earliest memory, how did you first get interested in the aquarium hobby and what was your first fishing aquarium setup? Well, Columbus and
1: I sailed over from uh, Europe and uh, no, I was a little kid and uh, we lived in Puerto Rico on an Air Force base and my parents got us a little five-gallon aquarium, my older brother and I. And we sold a bunch of toys to, in the neighborhood to get money to go to the pet shop, and we bought some swordtails. And the day we brought them home that night, one of the swordtails had babies. And that was it. It's, it's been an addiction ever since.
0: You worked on a fish farm when you were young also. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and how it influenced you?
1: Uh, I was in high school, and a good friend of mine... Danny Roberts, his father owned one of the largest fish farms in Florida at the time, Roberts Fish Farm, and I got a job after school and during the summer working on the fish farm there. Started out siphoning tanks and counting fish and running to and fro, getting stuff for everybody else, and after a couple of years, started breeding their uh, African cichlids, and uh, that's how I got interested
0: in commercial production of fish. And you stayed pretty fishy even in college, too. What did you do in college that was uh, fish-related?
1: There was a pet shop in town that was exclusively fish, and by badgering the owner repeatedly, I was able to get a job there and paid my way through college working at a fish store.
0: So how did you go from aquarium fish then to uh, three years in the Peace Corps?
1: Well... Got out of college at Florida State with a bachelor's degree in biology, which was pretty darn worthless at the time. Ended up getting a job at a wholesale operation, wholesaling tropical fish out of Riverview. But the hours were long and the work was tough and decided that I wanted to do something else and the Peace Corps was an option that we looked at and my wife and I joined the Peace Corps. spent three years in North Africa where I also worked at a fish hatchery doing marine food fish.
0: So you stayed fishy anyway in the Peace Corps? Stayed fishy, yes. <laughs> so, 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 uh, so after all that, how did you end up working back in Florida?
1: Got out of the Peace Corps, went to Auburn University to get my master's degree. And as I was finishing up, a job announcement came across my boss's desk. He was the extension specialist there, advertising for an extension agent in Florida, working with the tropical fish industry which I jumped all over and started
0: working for the University of Florida in 1988. So you've been involved for very, very many years. How has the industry changed since the, the good old days back when you were a kid?
1: Well, in some ways, it's, it's gotten a lot better. Production is certainly more sophisticated. And in some ways, the fish are better fish because people are more expert in taking care of their fish. In other ways, though, it's changed in that it's not quite as personable as it used to be. There used to be a lot more farms, and therefore there were a lot more people selling fish. And so the market was pretty wide open and gave almost everybody an opportunity to find a niche within that market and produce fish that they could sell. Now it's the uh, distribution and production have all been consolidated quite a bit, and we don't have as many farmers and not as many people shipping fish. So the markets are kind of limited, and and so it's a little less personable. Uh, let me put it that
0: way, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think it does. I think it does, and I think a lot of the other industries have seen something very similar, kind of a lot of consolidation, so I, that makes sense. But what is your job at the Tropical Aquaculture Lab? I
1: Take care of you. No, I'm, I'm the director of the lab, and it's my job to make sure that we still have funding for all the different things that we do, uh, kind of oversee the, the program to make sure that it stays on track and it's doing what it was meant to do, which is to help the farmers in Florida primarily. And uh, my passion, my, my research is, uh, and I'm fortunate in that I'm able to still do it, is reproduction of new species.
0: So you mean sex, right? Fish sex.
1: Yeah, fish sex. That's okay. right.
0: So besides having to deal with me on a daily basis, what, what is maybe the other most frustrating part of your job?
1: Well, you know, we have veterinary interns and sometimes they can be extremely problematic like Dan Rothen. I don't know if you remember him. but
0: Oh, Dan, of course I remember him. That
1: was a joke that we planned. <laughs> that one was for you, Dan. Actually, uh, yeah. Well, there's nothing frustrating about my job.
0: That's great. <laughs> well, I think it's time to talk aquarium fish sex. Many people probably know, as as we uh, discussed in the intro, that guppies give birth, and you mentioned swordtails, too, these pretty well-developed fish that are able to start feeding right away. But I bet a lot of people really don't know about a lot of the other fish in the fish stores. Can you briefly explain some of the different ways that uh, fish are spawned here in Florida?
1: Well, uh, you mentioned swordtails. We lump swordtails, mollies, platies, guppies, into a group we call live bears, And those are the common fish that we call live bears. There are other live bears, but that's the big four. And those are grown primarily in open ponds where the broodstock are put out and they drop their babies and they grow them up. Uh, a lot of farmers collect the babies and move them to a new pond. Some farmers move the broodstock to a new pond. But that's fairly straightforward and it's the number of females you put in that determines how many fish you get
0: primarily. A more personal fish question, how do they actually breed though? The live bears. Yeah, the live bears. I bet bet people don't really know that. Well, uh, the male has a fin
1: and his anal fin is modified in that there's three rays on the end of it that fuse together And they make like a a trough. It's It's a long triangular shaped trough and it has hooks on the end of it. And they can turn that thing 360 degrees or 180 degrees around facing forward. They put that inside of the female. The hooks hold it in there and then they transport a sperm packet down that trough and insert it into the female. And then she... Can actually hold on to that sperm packet for as long as a year, periodically releasing sperm from it to fertilize the eggs
0: that are inside of her. Pretty cool, actually. It sounds painful. <clears throat> Hooks always sound painful, but uh, we, we can go on. Go ahead. What are some other, uh, <laughs> some other common ways that fish are bred here? I kind of see where you're taking this now, Roy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, then there's a whole other group of fish that we combine into what we call egg layers. And there, there's a lot of different strategies for how they release, fertilize, care or not care for their eggs. The most basic is what we call egg scatters. And the male and the female come together in the water column. The female releases a bunch of eggs. The male releases sperm. There's a cloud of sperm around the eggs that fertilizes them. And they go where they will. Uh, Sometimes they sink to the bottom. Uh, sometimes they float down the river or the stream and the current. Sometimes they've got an oil droplet and they float to the surface and they float along the surface, but they're just scattered. And and you see in those fish, usually they have a lot of eggs because the chances of those eggs surviving and hatching and the larva growing up are slim when you don't care for them at all. Then we have nest builders and when I say nest builders, it could be something as simple as cleaning a slate or a flat rock. Angel fish, freshwater angel fish, will do that. They'll clean a leaf or they'll clean up a, a rock, and the female lays the eggs in a group, and the male comes along and fertilizes them. Some other fish will do something real similar, but they'll find a, a cavity, a hole in a log, or a, a little hole in the wall of the bank, and they'll do the same thing. We have fish that we call uh, nest bubble nest builders that bring together a group of plants a lot of times, but sometimes they don't even need that. The, The male creates a nest of bubbles that are real sticky, covered with his slime, and the eggs are stuck up in that nest, and he'll sit there and guard that. Some fish make a nest out of plants on the bottom. Then you have another... Real cool group we call the mouth brooders where it can be the male or the female will hold the eggs, the fertilized eggs, in their mouth and until the young are ready to swim and protect them uh, in their mouth. The interesting thing here is with the more parental care that you get, usually the fecundity or the number of eggs goes down. Because the babies have a much better chance of survival the more the parents care for them. And also the eggs themselves are larger so that, because they don't need as many eggs to successfully reproduce. And then there's some weird oddballs like seahorses where the males have a pouch or a pad on the sea dragons on their tail. Uh, there's another really weird fish that puts the eggs up on top of the head of the male. Fish are pretty creative in how to have sex and how to successfully reproduce, and it depends on where they come from and how they evolved.
0: So in Florida, where obviously the name of the game is variety and, and, uh, and making money for, for the producers, why is new fish sex so important to the industry? And what, you know, when we say that, what are we talking about?
1: Well, you mentioned that we produce several hundred varieties of fish. Used to actually be more, but Florida is not alone in producing fish for the aquarium trade. Not only do we have a lot of fish that come from the wild where they're collected, but we also have large, very sophisticated, very competitive farms in other countries that import their f- or export, and we import their fish into the North American market, which is primarily Florida's market in North America. We do export a little bit, but that's that's our market. So every time that we can successfully start producing a new species of fish here in Florida. It increases the market share for the wholesalers and the farmers in general. There's also typically a window of time in the initial stages of producing a new species where the price is really good uh, because you're the only person or the only few people in town that have them. There's another aspect of the the trade, the business that plays into this, and that's that wholesalers, distributors want to make a phone call or send an email and order as many different fish as they can from one place. So if we now have a Neon Tetra coming from Florida – that means that that distributor doesn't have to go to Hong Kong or South America to get them. And as he gets his neon tetras from Florida, he's also getting his swordtails, his Plecostomus, and everything else. So adding a new species doesn't doesn't just produce the value of that one species, it increases the competitiveness of Florida's industry.
0: Well, we've got quite a bit more of fish sex to talk about, but we'll uh, have to take a real short break and then continue our discussions with Craig Watson. Right after these messages from our sponsors.
1: Hi, I'm Dana Humphrey, the founder of Whitegate PR. We have been specializing in PR and marketing in the pet industry for over 10 years.
0: We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Craig Watson from the University of Florida. So, so Craig, you talked about a couple really interesting ways fish breed or spawn and and the importance of of having new species or, or new ways for breeding fish in the industry, how do you go about deciding which species of fish to work on? In and how do you make sure that once you figure these out, that that all that information will get transferred to the farmers?
1: Well, since the beginning, uh, we've worked very closely with the industry, uh, with advisory committees and their association board to communicate directly with them on. What would they like, so that's the first thing is listening to the industry to help us to help us make those decisions, but the criteria that we use for new species work is is it only imported into the United States uh, in other words, is it not available in the u s or if it is available is it is it not available in the in any quantity that would be able to compete with, with imported species or imported fish? two is, is it got a high dollar value, either individually or even better in volume. So we look for fish that have a large market share. And the reason the volume is important, because that allows more than just one or two producers to then use the information that we create through our research and turn it into a business plan. And then we also look at, is it viable? I mean, is it something that we think we can do? We've had some fish that we've worked with for a number of years, only to come back and tell the farmers and the producers that based on our information, we don't think that it's economically feasible to produce that fish on farms here in Florida. So those are the kind of decisions we make.
0: Well, given all those decisions and and obviously a very complicated process to figure it out, well, what are some of the earliest successes you and colleagues at UF, maybe in Gainesville, I guess, had, and here had with spawning new species for the industry? Well, the first one
1: was was already underway before I got here, and that was uh, red tail black sharks. And that was a, a fellow named Jim Gilday was doing his master's research with Dr. Shireman, and they worked out the reproductive strategy for red tail black sharks using standard hormonal induction processes and that fish also turned into rainbow sharks and albino rainbow sharks and and pangasius or mystery sharks tinfoil barbs there was a whole group of fish that all of a sudden started being produced here in florida based on that one master students research project and and it, what he found was that it's a site it's in the minnow group uh was that it responded much like carp do. So using standard aquaculture practices from carp food fish production, they were able to get that fish in production. And that ended up being literally millions of dollars every year to the state of
0: Florida, again, from a, from a simple graduate student's thesis. So what, what was the secret to that one, that, to that group? How, how did they end up spawning them? It was just uh, conditioning
1: the females, looking at the eggs to make sure that the eggs were mature, and and what we look for there is that there's a macronucleus, and when that macronucleus is migrated over toward the side of the egg, we know the eggs are mature. And then using uh, GnRH, which is a a gonadotropin-releasing hormone uh, with a dopamine inhibitor, and I believe back then they were using a product called Reserpine for that research, but today, there's a, there's a standard product available f- from Western chemicals called Overprim, which is essentially the exact same thing, except in an injectable form. And then using hand stripping or spawning in tank techniques to get the eggs out of the female and fertilized by the males. Were there any other fish
0: early on or any other uh, fish that...
1: Another notable one, because this one was done a little differently, was Neon Tetras. Uh, the belief... Was that you could not produce neon tetras in Florida because we didn't have the proper water, and that the number of eggs that you got per female, the hatch, the survival was so low that there was no way that anybody in Florida could compete with Hong Kong, which is now the is still the world 's largest supplier of neon tetras they're they 're not coming out of the Amazon like they used to. But uh, again, a very inexpensive and simple research project looked at using water filtration technologies of a softener and a reverse osmosis filter to recreate the extremely soft, low pH water needed for good spawning. And also the trick with NEONS is to use very young females To start with and to spawn them very regularly. One of the big mistakes that was being made was trying to spawn great big fat female neon tetras that were really too old and the eggs that they had should have been spawned months before that and so the spawns were being interfered with because they had all these old bad eggs in them. But now today... Florida probably, if I had to guess, I'd say we ship 500 boxes a
0: month of, you know, 400, three to 400 neons out of the state. Well, that's definitely a lot of neons. And it, yeah, it seems like there's a lot of little tricks for, for every, every type of fish. Now, early in your career, I'm sure you must have had some kind of holy grail fish, fish that people hadn't been breeding or, you know, wanted to breed but weren't able to. You'll have to tell us a little bit about the clown loach. I know that was one of your, your early uh, Holy Grail fish.
1: Yeah, I, you know about that because you were working 5D tropicals when we first started talking about it. The clown loach was a fish that I've always loved. And um, I had the pleasure of going to Indonesia in 1990 and seeing where they collected them and seeing some big mature clown loaches and always wanted to put that fish in production. That That's a fish that, you know, there's numbers aren't really good but it's it's well over 10 million fish a year are sold globally in the aquarium trade it's just a beautiful little fish peaceful brightly colored but it was kind of like the neon tetras everybody said you can't reproduce them that they won't they won't reproduce that they only sell males that they have to be 13 inches long before they're mature Uh, there were just an awful lot of things that people said that made it sound impossible to breed this fish but we decided that well they breed somewhere so let's just start looking at them and it was really interesting in that we really didn't do anything fantastically new or special again it was finding out what are the best conditions to rear the adults in Uh, We found that they like to be left alone in a semi-quiet place. Uh, What did the females want to eat or need to eat? We found that that wasn't anything real special. To make good eggs, we were feeding them just a standard commercial diet, a salmon starter diet. And then using uh, the same techniques that we used on the rainbow sharks and the red tail black sharks, taking a sample of the eggs, looking at them for maturity, injecting the fish, and stripping the eggs out of them. And now we have three farms that have brood stock that are reproducing and keep hoping any day that we're going to start seeing boxes of clown loaches coming out of Florida. I will say that fish has some problems with larval rearing. The larvae are extremely touchy and there were several times where we did everything exactly the same way we did at the time before, which was very successful and had you know very poor survival. So that fish is still perplexing in that you know we can we can get good females, we can get good eggs, we can get sperm, we can get a hatch, but every now and then we have problems with larval rearing still.
0: Uh, so it's it's getting closer but it's still uh, still a little bit of a holy grail fish thing. Yes. Uh, okay. Yes. Well, recently You have received a lot of press about the work you've done with with the green-spotted puffer. Can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the green-spotted puffer and and some of that work? Well, that's an interesting story
1: in that, like I said earlier, we work with a group of farmers to help us come up with a list of species that they want us to work with. And green-spotted puffers were on that list. And... My experience with the green spotted puffers as a hobbyist and working at a pet shop was that it 's an aggressive little guy uh, they 've got they 've got a nice set of teeth and they use them to trim the fins of their slow moving tank mates if they can and that we never really sold that many of them, but one of the major retail chains had started carrying green spotted puffer fish on a regular basis and so they had a skew number and that's the sign that the fish has really got some volume when they give it a skew number so we got some green spotted puffer fish and i wasn't real excited about it as you can tell from the way i introduced this you know but one of the first things we do before we start working with any fish any new species we try to do a literature review of What's out there? Has somebody done this before? If if they have, what did they do? Why isn't it commercial? Uh, and anyway, uh, on green-spotted pufferfish, if you do just a simple internet search, you're going to find some hits. It'll come back on genome. Uh, the word genome will be in there, human genome project. And what I found was that the green-spotted pufferfish, tetraodone nigra viridis, is... The world has the world's smallest known vertebrate genome. And during the Human Genome Project, they used this fish as a model to identify vertebrate genes because it's a, it's a vertebrate like we are. It has a lot of the same genes that we do. And they've completely mapped the genome for the green-spotted pufferfish fish. And so I started talking to some of these scientists that had been involved with that project, and they, like the farmers and the wholesalers, were limited to wild-collected fish from Thailand primarily for their research. They never had learned how to reproduce them. So it at ad- right away my interest was peaked in that we might have something that had a value above and beyond the aquarium trade, and that that is that we could be the first to have embryos of the world's smallest known vertebrate genome. And the scientist agreed. So we got a lot of interest from a lot of different people, not from the value of this fish as an aquarium fish, but the value of this fish as a science tool. And we now have a producer in Florida that's producing them and has focused on a market supplying them to labs in Canada another one in california and europe there's there's still a lot of labs that are looking at this fish for their research so it was kind of serendipitous that you know this fish that i wasn't excited about but it was on the list we'll go ahead and work with it turned out to be one that really established our lab as having little more than just industry impact and that we were doing good science and we were of value to the scientific community as well
0: so i guess i have to mention we've got a in our diagnostic lab, a number of fish that have been painted that represent different people here at the lab. And yours happens to be a green spot of puffer. So I'm not sure if that's good or bad, but...
1: Another moment of serendipity, yes.
0: Exactly, a a moment of serendipity. So we've got so much more uh, to talk about. We're running out of time, but I wanted to just ask you... uh, if uh, maybe you could briefly mention some of the other fish that you and the staff here, uh, in terms of the most immediate freshwater, brackish water fish, you guys have been working with and breeding uh, successfully. Well, in the last
1: three years, Monodactylus sea bay, we've got those established. Uh, we have a producer with the broodstock on those. Black ghost knife fish, fire eels, we've been able to repeatedly reproduce those. We're working on Pictus catfish. We've been able to spawn them, but we're having some problems with larvae the larva there. Um, the puffer fish, as you mentioned, and, and those have since spun off to include figure eight puffers and dwarf Indian puffers.
0: Yeah. That's quite a few. So, um, so I guess if, if you had to sum up your sexual experience with fish, do you have any, uh, any final thoughts or words or ideas for our, our listeners?
1: I, I On a very serious note, you know, fish sex to me is just fascinating. You know, biology in general and how life works is just fascinating. But the beauty of this, especially working with aquarium fish, is that if you are a student of biology and life, you can learn so much about how it works in a small space with an aquarium. You know, that five gallon aquarium is how it all got started. But a lot of the work that we're still doing is being done in small aquariums. And you can just learn an awful lot about how nature has evolved by studying fish reproduction.
0: Well, those are definitely good and true words of wisdom. And we hope a lot more young kids get involved with aquaria and and really learn a lot more about nature through these small ecosystems and Learn more about reproduction. Well, we're unfortunately out of time. I, I want to thank, thank you, Craig, very much and our producers, especially Mark Winter, for making the show possible. So, uh, Craig, thanks very, very much. Please be sure to check out Craig's webpages. The links are on his Aquarium Mania bio page. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog on Pet Life Radio. You'll find pictures from this episode and or other episodes and can ask questions or make comments. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. If you're ever in Florida, please be sure to visit the Aquarium Mania exhibit at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa, one of my favorite aquariums. So until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores and keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy. And, And when you look at a fish in the store, think about it next time. Where did this fish come from and how did it actually reproduce?